Hello and welcome to Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda and I'm in the studio with John. This is the final episode in series one and we'll be asking, is fake news a real problem? And I'm excited to say that one of the rising stars of Nigerian fiction, Ayabami Adebayo, will tell us about her debut novel, Stay With Me, how it sheds light on love and childlessness, and why this is an exciting time for African fiction. We'll also call the FT's editor Lionel Barber to find out how his lunch with the President of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, went down. Griselda, how much fake news are you reading at the moment? I don't think I'm reading very much fake news, but I am told that a lot of people are reading a lot of fake news and that this is a problem. I do read a fair amount of fake news, but I'm totally aware of that because I'm thinking of websites like The Onion and, you know, kind <laughs> yeah. of satirical news websites. Yeah, so there's different kinds of fake news. There's the, I mean, The Onion is fake news, but it's also it's, it's satire, effectively. There's, yeah. there's fake news that is genuine fake news. It's stories that have been written by teenagers in Macedonia in order to make money by getting Trump supporters to click on them with kind of enticing headlines about Hillary Clinton. Broadly, there are three types of fake news stories. One is kind of when something is intentionally deceptive, where the truth is super contentious. Another one is just kind of when jokes are taken at face value, like The Onion or The Daily Mash. And then the other one is just large-scale hoaxes. One I really enjoyed, actually, and which the BBC and the Associated Press, The Independent, all reported on, was, um, did you see it, the story of the billionaire founder of Corona the Beer who died last year. So the story emerged that he had left two million euros to every single person in his home village. <laughs> yeah, I just and, see um, <laughs> like media kind of descended on the village and somehow this story went viral and it was a load of nonsense. I just feel very sorry for the villagers in that in that situation. I think what a rubbish to be a victim of a fake news story. And imagine, because like waking up there, you would have gone on to a legitimate news, you know, news source online, perhaps, and read that you were probably for in, once the news affects you. Yeah, and you're directly. Like, wow, I'm going to go to my bank and withdraw <laughs> two million euros. <laughs> Poor suckers. They also like this one that was doing the rounds about how the European Union drafted rules to regulate the ethnicity of snowmen. I would sincerely hope everyone would be able to take that kind of story at face value. <laughs> I think some people definitely do take fake news at face value, though. The headline, Pope Francis Shocks World Endorses Donald Trump for President, was one of the best performing stories on Facebook and one of the kind of biggest fake news stories of last year. It was originally published by a website called WTOE5 News, which had only been around for about two weeks when it launched this story. And it was then picked up by a website called Ending the Fed, where it got almost one million kind of Facebook engagements. So people sharing it and commenting on it in the lead up to the election. It does actually say on the website, WTOE5 News, not a catchy name, I have to say, that most articles on WTOE5 WTOE5news.com are satire or pure fantasy. So it's basically The Onion, but for people who don't realise they're reading The Onion, a kind of alt-right onion. Not a very nice thing. (laughs) Alt-right onion. (laughs) That's got a nice ring to it. Lots of people are also um, taking action against fake news now. 
Facebook are hiring fact-checkers and flagging fake stories. And the EU recently launched an 11-strong team made up of diplomats, bureaucrats and former journalists who have the thankless task of debunking <laughs> fact from fiction. And crack poor, squad. <laughs> these poor people have received death threats. One's been accused on Russian TV of espionage. So they're having a pretty tough time of it. It's an impossible task, police. right? Yeah, I mean, definitely a difficult task. And I mean, I guess we're talking about it today because more and more we're talking about fake news, um, how a lot of people think it's a big threat to democracy and undermines confidence in media in general. So we're going to kind of consider whether that is the case or whether fake news is actually something you only come across now and again and kind of take it with a pinch of salt. Yeah, is it entertainment or is it a threat? So we wanted to consider some of these questions and put them to our editor, Alec Russell, editor of FT Weekend. I also want to speak to you without the filter of the fake news. Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, and Abraham Lincoln, and many of our greatest presidents fought with the media and called them out, oftentimes, on their lies. They just don't want to report the truth, and they've been calling us wrong now for two years. They don't get it but they're starting to get it, I can tell you. Since you're attacking us, can you give us a question? Since you're, no, Mr. President-elect. Go ahead. Mr. President-elect, since you are attacking our news organization, can you you give us a chance? Alec, thank you for joining us. Great to be here, I'm a big fan. Yeah, your debut debut appearance on the pod in the (laughs) final episode. (laughs) As we just heard in the clip, the issue of fake news has become pretty prominent especially during the US election campaign, with tons and tons of fake stories both about Trump and Hillary Clinton. So Alec, you were previously the FT's news editor. How big a problem do you think fake news is today? Wow. Uh, Well, uh, fake news, of course, is not new. And I think it's really important to remember that. But as a news editor, it is a huge challenge. Traditionally, if you're a news editor, what is your responsibility? Your responsibility is to get the strongest stories you can, and before you publish them, verify them. Well, now, when there's an an industrial complex producing fake news, there are all these stories just popping up everywhere, huge pressure from competitors who are seizing on them, and you have to make many more rapid decisions about what you seize on and what you don't seize on. It's quite hard. Has the FT ever had any problems with fake news? Well... Obviously, (laughs) I'm I'm touching wood here. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. But when I look at what's happened to some of our rivals and competitors, I think there, but for the grace of God, you have to fall back on your basic journalistic principles, which is never publish anything until you're completely sure about it. Now, some of the most obvious fake news stories are so patently ludicrous that I don't think we've got any problem in, in avoiding them. But here's where it becomes quite complicated. What happens when Donald Trump wakes up one morning and he sends out around the world one of his uh, famous notorious tweets? And we think, look, this really doesn't stack up. But he's the president of the United States. When the president of the United States says something, then a serious responsible global news organization has to follow it up. That's how I guess you could say that we do sometimes follow fake news, despite ourselves. Look at what happened last week with all this stuff with these allegations from the White House that GCHQ had been asked by Obama to tap him and 
it seems to be completely preposterous. And all our instincts were when this story broke, this is preposterous. But it's a president of the United States saying it. Even though you're not following the fake news story in as much as you're not saying, this is true, folks, watch out. Yeah, you're, you you're are, still covering it. You're much. still covering yeah. it. And you're, in a sense, you're following his lead and yeah. doing his bidding and allowing him to set the agenda. Yeah. And that's where I think fake news is really tricky for us. Yeah. And I think the way that you kind of report on it and the words that you use to cover what is fake and what is real is quite interesting as well. The New York Times used the word lie about Trump in January. The headline was meeting with top lawmakers. Trump repeats an election lie. And this was about the number of illegal voters who he says that he would have won the popular vote had it not been for all these illegal voters. It was quite a big deal when the New York Times used the word lie. Yeah, I read about this. They took a long time to come to, to that kind of decision. debate it and they actually changed the headline several times. Well, you could say that this is this is actually one of the good things that's come out of the whole fake news phenomenon. Because I remember uh, working in Washington, I covered politics in Washington when George W. Bush was in office. And I remember being very struck by the approach of the New York Times and the Washington Post and other venerable news organisations, that they found it terribly hard to deal with mistruths or not even mistruths but misconceptions that were coming out of senior politicians and they take them all very seriously and treat them in an incredibly scientific fashion whereas a British news organisation would call people out much more readily and there are problems with that but I still think it leads to greater clarity and transparency so I think this is a good thing the New York Times has become more aggressive in its reporting. It realises that the old way of doing things doesn't really work when you've got a White House that's pumping out fake news. Earlier, Alec, you touched on the fact that fake news is nothing new. And indeed, in the 18th century, when London had over 10 daily papers, there were lots of little gossipy articles and they were written by people called paragraph men. And under lots of these, there would be a declaration saying only half of this article is true, leading leading the reader to decide which yeah, it was basically gossip, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So the reader had to just decide gossip, yeah. fact from fiction. I guess why we're talking about this in a far more serious way now is um, these problems are all highlighted and exacerbated in the US presidential campaign. And also, this is the year, of course, when France, Germany and Holland are going to be electing their leaders. And there's a lot of kind of fake news swirling around about all of those far-right candidates too. Well, I do think it's important that we remember that fake news has been around for a very long time. I mean, my favourite fake news story of all time was a classic British tabloid story in the late 1980s. And it was the Sunday Sport and it splashed all over its its front page, B-52 bomber found on the moon. And thought, wow, fantastic bit of ludicrous (laughs) nonsense. And then they followed it up the following week with another exclusive story, B-52 bomber found on the moon goes missing. So they got two great, <laughs> ludicrous, silly fake news stories and the, and, and the world laughed about it. News organisations, or rather tabloid news organisations, politicians around the world have been disseminating fake news for millennia. It's more kind of formally known sometimes as propaganda. Did people believe those stories you just mentioned? Well, not. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think the tabloid ones. They did buy the paper. There were all sorts of famous Sun headlines, which were, should we say, distortions of the, the truth. The thing about fake news is that it is a problem for news organisations. Yes, the Trump administration is rather ruthlessly and effectively using it. One, as, as a um, way of getting its message out, and, or a message out, and two, as a way of sort of debasing its opponents. So it only says the Financial Times or the BBC, your fake news. I think there's also a question of actually how much it is a danger to democracy. 
it's not good for news organisations necessarily. I mean, maybe it is. There has been a spike in subscriptions to things like the New York Times, but it does pose a kind of existential threat to news journalism if it's always being undercut. But the question of actually whether it affects election outcomes was something that was being discussed a lot after the uh, presidential election. And I think recent studies have shown that actually when asked, people think that fake news is much more of a problem than than it actually is. You're spot on there. I mean, one, one, one point to bear in mind is if you take the view, as most people seem to, that one of the key factors in this, this recent American election was that the, the, the Rust Belt turned against the Democrats and voted for Donald Trump, then fundamentally we're talking about, I don't know, a demographic of 40-something, 50-something, 60-something white men who, who had traditionally been Democrats and had turned. Are they the sort of key social media people? The election results stem from many more things and more important things than fake news. I mean, having said that, though, that social media is undoubtedly, you know, if it didn't affect this election, it is a kind of growing concern for the way that we imbibe news and consume it. I mean, 44% of Americans get their news from Facebook. It's interesting because, you know, Facebook is not a media company, it's a technology company. Zuckerberg has said, you know, that he wants to build the perfect personalised newspaper. The idea, I think, of having kind of personalised news is is something that's, you know, it's slightly different from fake news, but the idea of a filter bubble is, I, I think, slightly worrying. The people are criticising social media, Facebook, Twitter, quite a lot for the dissemination of fake news. But surely that just exposes you to, you know, a plethora of viewpoints. A, a lot of these stories are easy to spot. Isn't it much worse back in the day only reading one paper? That's a far more... I think the thing is, though, that one whatever pa- you read in that paper, which will have a political bias, will oh, surely sure. be far more powerful than reading the odd fake news story via Twitter. I think maybe the problem with people's news feeds, though, is on Facebook, is that they are a sort of echo chamber of similar opinion and not necessarily an p- opinion that's kind of uh, verified news reporting. An article from the FT will be on a part with an article from something that's not really it's not written by journalists and it's difficult for people to distinguish what the difference is and I think it's difficult for people to know what to what to trust exactly well this very this very discussion we're having really reflects our own echo chamber because I think there are probably also <laughs> yeah. there are all sorts of there are all sorts of people uh, who voted for Trump who receive his tweets or see, see reports on his tweets every morning and say attaboy quite right mainstream media lamestream media hopeless <laughs> out of touch elitist liberal they don't really understand what's going on and they regard the fake news phenomenon and the sort of the the term fake news as a, as, as an abuse as fantastic yeah absolutely i mean we're all in our own filter bubbles and i think the idea of kind of truth and post truth is quite a kind of complex and slightly difficult idea because you know it's very easy for us in a sense in our own bubble to mock trump voters who get their news from facebook But actually, we journalists missed the massive truth, which was the story that these people were going to vote for Trump. We talk about being post-truth, but we're in a way in our own silo. Yeah, I'm going to to fight back about the the (laughs) idea of us missing everything. I I mean, the FT, for example, said that Brexit was going to be close. It was close said that the Trump-Clinton election was going to be close. It was very close. And there were lots of lots of reports out there about it. It's just a sort of ideas now gone out there pushed forth by the Brexiteers and the Trumpists and Trumpisters saying, oh, you missed the whole story. What was going on? Well, no, not really. 
well, we didn't miss the whole story. Yes, many of our columnists argued that it would be better to have Hillary Clinton in the White House. But uh, it really irritates me when people say, you guys, you're so dopey, you didn't understand what was going on. No, there was lots of reporting was going on. We said it was going to be close and, and it could have gone either way. On fake news, I don't want to give, give the impression I'm completely blasé about it. I think that there's a bigger issue here, though, in terms of democracy than fake news and even than the role of the social media giants. And I think that is the issue is the stance that the US president, the most powerful person in the world, is taking towards news and accuracy and and reporting. So when he stands up and starts lambasting seasoned news organisations as just being ludicrous, out of touch, silly, irrelevant, who does that embolden? It emboldens the autocrats around the world. It emboldens Vladimir Putin, President Erdogan in Turkey, who are waging their own campaigns against against the free press in much tougher circumstances for journalists. And they can look at the White House and, and say, look, that's what the Americans do. There, there's an added complication too in that, I don't know whether you guys have seen, but the Kremlin on one of their uh, web pages on a government website have started to put a red stamp saying fake news on basically stories they don't like, which often yeah. are true. So it's become kind of a badge of honour for, for kind of US and British journalists <laughs> to get this red they stamp from the yeah. 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 So, you know, there's fake news, there's things labelled as fake news, and, you know, it's a merry-go-round of mind-spinning proportions. That is quite odd, because uh, when I started re- reporting in the 90s, that's the sort of thing that would have terrified you. Imagine if someone had written to your editor and saying, this is fake news, and there'd be all sorts of inquests and inquiries and, and so on. And now, of course, as you say, now we're all desperate for that accolade. Hooray, I've been denounced. I've been denounced as a fake and phony. Okay, guys, we've been talking about fake news for a while now, so hopefully your antennas are sharp as they can be. I'm going to give you a few <laughs> stories, and I want you to tell me whether they are real or fake. Okay? I'm going to read the headlines. Who's going first? As former news editor of the FT, let's, you can go first. I'll start with an easy one for you both, okay? This was a headline. God seeking to crack down on souls smuggling drugs into heaven. Alec, true or false? God seeking crackdown crack down on souls. It, it, it's, a, it's a good story, but I'm going to say that one's false. Griselda? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go with false. Fake news. Correct. Well done, both of you. That was indeed fake. Okay, they're going to get toughy. They're going to get slightly <laughs> trickier from Think here. about that one. Yeah. And some of these stories I'm going to read were some of the most popular mm. stories um, of 2016 and the early months of 2017 so far. And we may have some of our some of our creationist listeners maybe rather, <laughs> maybe rather cross with me about that one. Yeah, we might get yeah. that. It was an easy one. Okay, it was difficult. <laughs> okay, next up. Many North Koreans believe that Kim Jong Il did not use the toilet. It's not a very good headline. It's bad news. It went viral. Anything with North Korea and it goes viral. Uh, I will say that that is true. Griselda? I'm just going to sound like I'm copying Alec now. I think it sounds pretty plausible. Yeah, we're a team. (laughs) Well, the leaks are real. It is true. Kim family members have indeed been elevated to the level of deities. Okay, the French PM suggests naked breasts represent France better than a headscarf. Yes, that's true. Well, I was going to say, no, I don't think so, but Alex sounds convinced. Well, the leaks are real. Oh, OK. That's, that's <laughs> In a rousing speech, Manuel Val hailed the bare breasts of Marianne, a national symbol of the French Republic. So we've had God, we've had the lavatory, and we've had bare breasts. Rage against the machine to reunite and release anti-Donald Trump album. OK, it's going for four out of four. 
This was shared over eight hundred thousand times. I am going to say, I'm going to say that yes, that was a line, but it's false. Oh, I think, I think it's true. Fake news. <laughs> Fake news, but that was one of the most popular stories on social media of 2016. And so, if the weekend falls apart, I can have my old job back as news editor. <laughs> <laughs> And final question, and Griselda, you're going to answer first this time, please. <laughs> okay. Um, the German Foreign Office tweeted that it was heading to an Irish pub to get decently drunk after the Brexit vote. I don't think that's real. I am going to say true. Well, the leaks are real. Griselda, this is why you <laughs> haven't been the FT's news editor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Alec Ewan, which uh, you should have. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Alec, for joining us. Uh, it's a, a great treat to be with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello. Hello, Lionel. Yeah, I'm here, yeah. You've just had lunch with um, Jean-Claude Juncker. Was he still seething following the Brexit vote? Was he nervous about Article 50? Uh, Mr Juncker was in form actually not nervous at all um <laughs> rattling off statistics uh he did say some uh, rather tough things though about britain and particularly that the bill is likely to be at least 60 billion euros for leaving uh, and he was pretty uncomplimentary also about david cameron saying that he knew two big destroyers great destroyers in his political life one was mikhail gorbachev and the other is david cameron so david cameron's not going to enjoy reading your piece <laughs> Mr. Cameron will be uh, wincing in one or two places, I predict. Was Juncker nervous about Article 50 being invoked? No, the uh, fact that Article 50, which triggers the divorce proceedings in the, the UK and the EU, you know, that's been on the cards. It's interesting that uh, it's not going to be triggered until after the celebrations of the 60th anniversary of the founding Treaty of Rome. So I think Juncker was pleased, in diplomatic terms at least, that Britain's had the courtesy to wait a bit, not spoil the party. <laughs> and where did you guys have lunch? We had lunch on the 13th floor of the Berlaymont in Brussels, which is the headquarters of the European Commission, in the President's private dining room, known as Le Salon du Président. And it was a very exquisite uh, dining table, just laid out for two me and the president alone for uh, more, almost two hours. He's known for liking um, a glass of wine. Was it a boozy lunch? It was a marginally boozy lunch, and actually the president uh, stuck only to white wine. It was a rather good 2013 longer dock. I had uh, a glass and a half of that and then moved uh, effortlessly into the Pomerol, uh, a 2005 Pomerol, which we did not consume the whole bottle, though, John. Oh, well, at least you had wine. Far too many lunches these days are teetotal affairs, so that's at least a good thing. Um, and you've met Juncker before, of course, haven't you? I interviewed him several times in the 1990s when I was the bureau chief for the Financial Times in Brussels. So I do know him rather well, and he was a good source as well as a very well-informed politician. He was long-time prime minister of Luxembourg, sort of mini power broker in Europe, who knew Helmut Kohl, Jacques Chirac, François Mitterrand, all those, uh, Jacques Delors, he knew them very well. Uh, Helmut Kohl, by the way, used to call him Junior. <laughs> and um, you sent me a photo. He had a rather dashing tie on for your meeting. Well, it's a great 
flashy, dashing pink tie, which looked rather good on a white shirt and dark suit. And I think maybe the pink was a little allusion to the uh, to the FT, although I'm told he does like pink. Oh, power of the FT brand. That's good, sir. And um, was there a bill? Well, it was a lunch at the Com- European Commission in his private dining room. So actually, there was no bill. But maybe it's actually a bill for the EU taxpayers, which I guess is you and me. Add it on to the 60 billion we're going to pay yeah. when we leave the European Union. It's chump change, John, chump change. <laughs> Thanks very much, Lionel, and I really look forward to reading the piece. Thanks, John. So next up, we're going to hear from the Nigerian novelist Eubami Adebayo. Her book, actually, Stay With Me, was just nominated for the Bailey's Prize. So we were pretty good on getting her into the studio we, straight away. We got her in straight away. The morning of the announcement, she was in the studio. So she'd, she'd literally found out a couple of hours earlier. Yeah, she was pretty excited. She was she? very excited, yeah. I think she was she was slightly overwhelmed. Excited as you would be. And she's on the long list with lots of amazing novelists, of course, including Margaret Atwood. Yeah, Margaret Atwood, who taught her at UEA, the University of East Anglia, where Ayobami did a creative writing master's. And Margaret Atwood read the first chapter of Stay With Me and loved it, and I think offered to introduce Ayobami to her literary agent. So she was really a big sort of important mentor in her life. Mm. And you were super excited about having her in because you love the book, right? Yeah, the book's wonderful. Stay With Me is about a married couple, Yejide and Akin, And it's a sort of romantic tale. They meet at university and it's kind of love at first sight. But things become more complicated when they discover they can't have children. Or at least there are no medical reasons for why, but they just can't conceive. And I think in the UK, this would play out in a very different way. As it is in Nigeria, polygamy becomes a real issue. He takes another wife, Fumi, and the relationship between Yejide, the first wife, and Fumi, the second wife, is very sort of competitive and difficult, as you can imagine. Other things come into play, like sort of witchcraft and all these assumptions about what women should do and whose fault it is sort of really come to the surface and bubble up because of the childlessness. It's quite funny though, right? Yeah, it's quite a funny book. The characters are very vividly drawn and the the sort of feuding between the different wives. Yejide herself is, is from a polygamous family, so her dad has these four wives. I think actually five, because Yejide's mother died. These wives are quite sort of funny, actually, in their scheming and in their, the ways that are always trying to kind of get at each other and win the affection of, of the husband. So it's sort of quite comic, but actually it it does have a kind of, dark undertone I think in a way because Yejide because she doesn't have a mother is quite an outsider in this polygamous family because she doesn't really have anyone who's kind of fighting her corner. And we hear lots about Nigerian fiction at the moment how does she fit into that scene? So she's still quite young Ayabami's in her late 20s uh, so she's slightly younger than, for example, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who people will know as the author of Half of a Yellow Sun and Americana and Purple Hibiscus. But Ayabami's actually similar in a sense to Chimamanda in that she's dealing with sort of Nigerian middle class moors, family life, relationships. And she was actually mentored herself by Chimamanda at a, a writing workshop in Lagos when she was just 19. And I think that was very formative for her. She had some good mentors then. <laughs> she's had some top quality mentors, yes. Well, here is Ayabami Adebayo speaking to us in the studio. I grew up in a house full of books. 
I can't think of anybody in my family who doesn't sleep with at least two books in their bed every night. I, I really can't. And I remember being a child that while I was a teenager, if I wanted maybe a new pair of jeans or something, I would have to explain to my mother and make a case for it. Whereas if I wanted 10 new books, I didn't have to give an explanation. I just got the money. I was born in Lagos, Nigeria, and after a while, my parents moved to a city called Elisha, where most of Stay With Me is set. And then again, we moved again <laughs> to a city called Elisha, about 30 minutes from Elisha, which is a university town. My mother is a doctor. While I was growing up, she was doing her residency in radiology and became a consultant. And my father was an economist. One of my neighbours when I was growing up was a professor of literature. And for some reason, everywhere my parents lived on campus, there was always some professor of literature nearby. So now that I think of it, there was always someone close by who was a professor of literature or had a doctorate in literature. So I also had access to their libraries. That was the fun thing. I could go to their houses and say, oh, I want to read this. And they would be so excited to say, oh, you go read that. And it meant also that if because Ife is one of the first universities in Nigeria, many people had passed through it, had taught there. Chino Achebe had taught there at a point. Wali Shenka taught there for several years. Olaritimi, who's a playwright, lived on campus. So it was wonderful to be in an environment where stories about these people were told when I also had this dream of becoming a writer. I remember I got to the secondary school at uh, age nine and I used that as a marker to remember when I was I started writing in that first year and most of the years after I would not copy notes in class but I would be writing poems while the teacher was instructing everybody and I got into trouble in that first year because one of the teachers caught me writing poetry and I had to be punished because I wasn't paying attention. But it didn't quite help. I, I still kept doing it. I came to write Stay With Me. First of all, it was a short story I wrote while I was in the university that had these characters in it. And for two years after that, I kept thinking about them. It was as if they wouldn't go away. And I would just be walking and I'd see someone and I'd think about Yejide. So two years later, while I was working in Lagos, I began to write the novel. And it was a very busy time. I was working in banking and because I didn't live on the highland, Lagosians will understand what that means. It's it's the commercial centre of the city and it's quite expensive to live there. So most people who work there commute from outside the island. Uh, it meant that I had to leave the house by 5.30 every morning to get to work. And because traffic was insane, there were days I didn't get back home until after midnight. What I did 
was that while I was in the commute and you spend a lot of hours in traffic in Lagos because I didn't have to drive I would then take out my phone and just write sentences that came to me about this novel and during the weekend I would then pick up a computer and write out the things that I've been I'd been gathering whole week as material I had always known while even while I was working in Lagos and much more before that that what I wanted to do was to write and I remember that during that time I was terrified that if I did not start working on a novel I would never write again I felt that the job and all of the stress was sucking out every creativity and everything that was creative that I could do and starting the novel was me pushing back and saying no this is what I really want to do with my life and I'm going to do it no matter what I think of myself as very fortunate because I could write pretty much anywhere I find it quite easy to turn off what's going on around me and write but when I'm editing which is what I think of as the real job that I do and when I'm editing something I've written when I'm editing a first draft I prefer to be in a room without windows that is weird or with the curtains closed so that the reality in my mind is much more vivid than anything else I believe that in Nigeria and perhaps particularly in the southwest and even in other parts because monogamy is demanded of women but it's not expected of men men always have the option of taking a second wife you could take somebody else and I could make a fuss about it but it's not going to be illegal it is not really going to get in trouble for doing that and I think that particularly for women who don't have children early on in the marriage and as it is for Yejide in this novel, it becomes a bigger problem. I wouldn't say the novel is critical of Nigerian culture. I would say that it takes a closer look and I believe that whether it's Nigerian culture or any other culture, when you take a closer look, you start to see things that shouldn't be there. And I think it's James Baldwin who said that an artist's battle with his society is one of a lover. It's because I care so much and that I want to write about this so that we can do better. The first creative writing course or workshop that I ever did, I didn't even know there was anything like that. It was in Lagos, and Chimamanda Adichie had organized this um, writing workshop, which was for 10 days. And it was there that I began to think about writing as a craft. It was there that I became more deliberate about what I was doing. It was there that I had discussions about making a decision about, say, point of view. It was the first time I would have those kind of discussions. It was like Christmas because then I was in a room with other people who were doing the same thing. That had never happened before. So it was it was important that it happened for me so early when I was so young. 
shortly before I went for the workshop that Chimamanda Adichie organized, I think it must have been about a year before then, I walked into a supermarket on the university campus and I saw two books by Nigerian women. And one was Chimamanda Adichie's Popular Biscast, the other was Sefiata's Everything Good Will Come. And of course, I bought them immediately and read them. I'd read books that were written in the 60s by Nigerian writers. So I'd read Chino Achebe, I'd read Sintpreneur Quincy and all the people like that. I'd read books that were written in the 70s and the 80s, but it felt like there had been a drought in the 90s. Or maybe I just didn't have access to the books that were being published at that time. So in a sense, writing felt like something that was a bit distant, that much older people did. And to read popular discourse at that time and everything could become, it was a huge influence because I think that it spoke to me and said that this is something that is still being done. It's contemporary. It's not in the past. I'm a fiction editor at Saraba Magazine. Saraba Magazine is a literary magazine that focuses on African fiction and quite often I think because just because perhaps just because of our sheer number, a lot of Nigerian fiction is in there. And it's a very exciting job for me as an editor to work on stories that coming from different parts of the continent and even from Nigerians and Africans in the diaspora. What I read is exciting and interesting and every issue that we publish there's always one story or two or even three that I absolutely fall in love with. And I think that more and more I'm reading a lot of genre fiction. I'm reading very exciting sci-fi. I'm reading fantasy i'm reading quite a bit of magical realism so i believe that it's an exciting moment there's so much diversity there's a lot of experimentation that's going on So that is all for series one. John, we made it. Yep, 15 episodes done. And in the first series of our first ever podcast, we have spoken to people like Kate Tempest, Wayne McGregor. She was great. He was great. And Dejeka Akinili Cosby. She was great. Was wonderful. They've all been great. Everything's been great. (laughs) (laughs) No, our guests have been wonderful. We've had some good chats as well about the art of internet trolling. And we had an online provocateur come join us. What else have we talked about? Yes, we did have a a real life troll in the studio. (laughs) We've talked about narcissism. We've talked about the death of music. We've talked about the Oscars. Girls. Yep, so we've got through <laughs> quite a lot. And we're going to have to have some good ideas for series two. Which will be with you in a month or so. Listen back to all of the episodes we've put out if you haven't already. And then subscribe to us to make sure you don't miss a single episode of series two. Following on from today's episode, you can read Lionel Barber's interview with Jean-Claude Juncker at ft.com slash lifeandarts. Everything else is produced by the lovely Chica Ayres. We've been John Sonia and Griselda Murray Brown, and our music is composed and produced by Fatim.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.